One of the perks of this job is that every so often you can find a legitimate excuse to interview a writer about a book that came out before you started. This is one of those interviews. The KLF, Chaos Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds by John Higgs was first published 10 years ago, self-published in fact, and quickly became a phenomenon. Ostensibly about the reasons why, in August 1994, the remnants of one of the most successful, if esoteric, pop bands on the planet would torch 20,000 £50 notes on the Scottish island of Jura, John Hicks quickly finds himself obliged to veer off-piste, into the worlds of punk, rave, dada, magic, discordianism, alchemy, numerology, and the very fabric of reality itself. Republished now, there's my excuse for getting John Higgs on today, and with added reflective footnotes, the KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds is as wild a ride as you would want from a book about the playful, chaotic duo at the heart of the band. Not only that, but it might also reveal what Higgs calls one of the most important philosophical leaps of the 20th century, although I'm sure we'll come on to that. John Higgs, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hi, Adam. Wow, that was quite an intro. I'm, I've got a lot to live up to after that. <laughs> well, I mean, the the book lives up to that intro and, uh, and then some. Um, so... I said this is a new edition, 10 years out. Um, so let's let's begin with that. Like, you know, 10-year anniversary books come around all the time. What people tend to do is slap a little gold badge on it, say 10-year anniversary edition, but don't meddle with the, the text or the fabric of the book itself. As I said in the introduction, you decided to re-release this book with footnotes 10 years on. Could you talk a little bit about why you decided to do it that way? Yeah, it's the footnotes are essentially me going back and looking at the book again after 10 years and, you know, seeing what I think of it, essentially. I didn't actually meddle with the book itself. Mm. Nothing was actually changed right. in, in the... If I could even point out the odd typo that's been sitting there for like uh -huh. 10 years. And things. In fact, I think the only thing we changed um, was uh, someone who's quoted has since transitioned. Mm -hmm. So, okay. we, you know, we, we don't dead name them in this, this edition. Right. I, I like the purity that a book is a fixed text but you know uh, you don't have to be a dick about it so basically sure, yeah. so <laughs> but the the, the funness they're kind of like um the idea it was like a a director's commentary on a, mm -hmm. on a dvd um where you can get insight into how the the sort of thing came about and and stuff like that i it, it seemed an odd idea to do for a book mm -hmm. i don't think it would work for a lot of books it kind of works for this, I think. Mm, you know, I'll, I'll so. see what people what people's reaction will be. Um, but it is it's certainly very interesting to me to look back on it because I'm a completely different person now. Mm. This is ten years later. I've I've completely changed. If I was to write that book now, it would be very very different. Mm -hmm. And if I wrote it ten years before I did, it would have been very, very different. I think that book sort of came along at the sweet spot where it was uh -huh. just the right, it was just the right version of me to, to sort of write it, I think. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that really struck me uh, while reading it, and I think one of the reasons the footnotes work is that I think there's two kind of time leaps for me. So the first one is the sort of what a different world we're living in now yeah. compared to 10 years ago, when you when you wrote the book and and in a way a world which is in some way pertinent to the story and the activities mm. of the klf and i'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about that and then again how the world had changed in the 20 years before then when the klf were around producing their music and um burning their mm. um their million pounds and that was one thing that really struck me on this reading was how far culture has moved since both of these events, the the yeah. burning of the million pounds and the first publication of your book. Very much so. And what I really, what, the thing I love about this book is when it gets into the hands of, you know, Generation Z or like mm. young millennials or people yeah. who weren't around for the KLF because they've grown up with, you know, TV programs like X Factor or Simon mm. Cowell's Pop Idol or those, um, those programs where musicians are judged judged by a panel of people mm -hmm. who know how things should be done. And to be a good musician, you know, you have to do the right thing and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and get the approval of these, these things. And to grow up with that as your understanding of how the music industry works um, is, is, is corrosive, I think. I don't mm -hmm. think that's a very, very uh, healthy thing for young musicians to be, to be exposed to. So when they see... If they read this book and they see how Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti acted and mm. the type of decisions they made and how absolutely nothing that they did would ever, you know, pass the committee, 
you know, it's quite, it's quite mind blowing to them. It's just it's a it's a whole different way of working suddenly just um, opens up to them the idea that they can be led internally rather than mm-hmm. by the industry. Um, it's very you know very necessary, I think, mm-hmm. um, and it is a sign of yeah, you exactly what you said, just how much things have changed since then. Yeah, uh, yeah, particularly yeah. for musicians. Yeah. So I would have been uh, sort of 10 or 11 when the, the KLF were at their peak. And so like 13, almost 14, when um, they, they burnt the million pounds. And I and I remember these, particularly the, the burning of the million pounds. I'm sure I probably read about it in NME or something like that. And I remember it as being an incredibly profound statement. Mm. Um, but I never quite understood what it was a profound statement off. And one thing that fascinated me uh, while reading, you know, particularly in, in the prologue to this book, is that it suddenly became clear that the KLF didn't rev- felt the same way in a way that it was it was certainly a profound statement, but they weren't even sure what, um, what it was about. I think that's what fascinated me so much about the story that I felt the need to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's always a sign when there's something that happened makes no sense uh-huh. that doesn't fit within your view of how the world works it's always a sign that you're missing something right that, that it's 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 a little trail into sort of a larger worldview a larger perspective so it's always worth following those uh-huh. those strange little things and the fact that they themselves did not seem to understand why mm. they'd done it you know yeah. there's no one sentence explanation that encapsulates why that act uh-huh. occurred you know that just isn't um then it sticks with you things that you understand you you read up on them you understand them you go i get that i mm. see what i can learn from that i'll move on mm-hmm. and look at other things but things that you that, that just don't have that explanation they don't yeah. go away they sort of stick stick in your mind and they're always bugging you and stuff like that and after 17 years i had to write that book because it was still uh-huh. bugging me what happened <laughs> the uh the sort of the title of the prologue and the i think the final line in the prologue if i remember rightly which has become almost the the motto of the book um the fuckers burned the lot yeah um it seems to capture something and I, i've had this i've been talking to a few people sort of younger colleagues who had never heard of the klf and there's something about that gesture of burning money and particularly mm-hmm. burning that amount of money which provokes a profound, often angry yeah. reaction from people. And one thing you you make this point about um, Elton John uh, mm. and the way he sort of spent his money on his lavish lifestyle, which sort of may you know people may judge him for or not. But for whatever reason, if Elton John spends a million pounds on a party, yeah, it doesn't seem to anger people absolutely in the way um, that they're kind of let's say mindless or meaningless burning of um of a million pounds of a million pounds does yeah it's a very different thing isn't it it's not Mm. money being wasted Mm. it's money being negated right it's money being denied you know Mm. money is supposed to slosh around the uh Mm. um the economy that's the role of it it's a means Mm. of exchange it's um you know if if elton john wastes it you know other people will get it and they'll do something with uh, it and it'll help them pay their rent and pay their mortgage and they'll spend uh, it on something else. And, and it sloshes around and, and uh, allows society to happen. But to sort of um, essentially forgive money, because mm. it, it is a promise of, 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 of payment, the actual yeah. notes, to to destroy those promissory notes, is to, to forgive that debt with the Bank yeah. of England, um, is to... Um, refuse to play that game almost uh-huh. it's to refuse to um obey money i think is what mm. i'm trying to say i think i think you know money is so such a controlling forces in in our lives mm-hmm. um the amount of things we do that we yeah. would never do because of money you know the amount of our lives that is dedicated to uh, obeying mm. what money wants us to do to just step away and say, say no Mm-hmm. It's it is a taboo. It is one yeah. of the last great taboos in, yeah, in our yeah, society yeah. to burn that money. I mean, people people feel angry because initially it's part of the thought as well. If they didn't want the money, 
I'd have had it, you know. <laughs> yes. I, they could have given it to me. That, that, that cursed bit. And it, yeah. Bill and Jimmy were never going to give you that million pounds. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Once you move past that, um, and, you know, this, it doesn't tell us anything about how much money they give to charity or mm. how much tax they pay or any, anything like that. You move past that and uh, that initial fury and that mm. initial... Uh, it's the arrogance of it, I think, that why yeah, it helps yeah, yeah. But when you, when you get past them yeah. and think of it in terms of money being something that you can escape from and can control uh, from and can negate and can get the better of, yeah. I mean, you don't get many thoughts like that uh, in yeah. in modern culture, you know, many anything's that sort of striking or that sort of interesting, yeah. um, which is why we're still talking about it now. In and that's the thing is that the sort of that subject of money is there at the beginning with the act and the sort of mm. the book in a sense comes full circle um and uh, sort of money again sort of the idea of money comes up sort of towards the end of the book as sort of um i guess we get a sense of um the meaningfulness of refusing to play the game yeah. only after having taken the journey with you through um through this book and the various kind of um esoteric outlands that, that we visit so i'm going to put a pin in the idea of money Mm. for the moment and just then come back to the the beginning of the book for you i guess um you said like you know that it was niggling at you all those years that idea of why they had burned it but had you come to the the subject of the klf as a fan of their music as an admirer as sort of or you know what was the what was the origin of your interest in the group and then in addition to that how did you arrive at this method, uh, this let's say very uh, meandering sort of ambulatory mm. method of telling of telling the story? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. Uh, I, I was aware of the band. I think I had a, the, the White Room album on tape or something, but it right. wasn't a, a big thing for me. I was probably more metal, more rock mm-hmm. than dance music at the time. And at the time, these things were quite rigidly sort of separated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was uh, it was it was a big deal, you know, to be one or the other. Um, but it was that when I read it was I read about it it was in the observer there was an mm. article by the journalist Jim Reed mm-hmm. um, who was with them when they burnt the money um, and I read that and then I just ripped the pages out uh, and put them in the drawer and I've yeah. never done that with anything I've never clipped anything before yeah I just thought I read it and just thought well I'm going to need these at some point so I just <laughs> I just put them aside uh, and and it was they, it was that act that I think that sort of led me back into you know the 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 rave side of it, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the story side of it, and and it was that notion that you know so many people have interviewed them and so many people have asked them why they did it, and it did become clear that they they couldn't say they didn't uh-huh. really know, so it became apparent that there was no point you know mm-hmm. asking them. Right. writing a biography and, and doing doing a biography sort of properly. Um, I needed to sort of go wider. I needed to look at the sort of things that were influencing them, mm. things that were sort of shaping the way they were thinking and look for sort of clues around there. And so when I started to write it, and I did it myself just at that time when Kindles were appearing, mm. and it meant that um, anyone could self-publish an ebook on yeah. Amazon for the first time, which uh, we'd think nothing of now, but it was, a, it was a real big deal. And I just thought, oh, I could I could write this and just, I could just put it out myself. And I don't think there's that many people who are interested. <laughs> but, uh, they're probably quite easy. There'd be a couple of thousand and they might be easy to find, you know. Yeah, like. yeah. So um, that removed me uh, from the, the, I don't know, pressure of mm. having to do it normally. Right to do the sort of book that an agent would mm. understand and a publisher would then understand and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was free to just to go off and do what I thought it should have been. Yeah, um, and yeah, and it well, and I did think, oh, at some point I'll get in touch with them and, and talk mm. to them. But the more I went into it, the more it was about capturing the spirit of the thing, uh-huh. and the spirit of the thing was not to ask nicely you know yeah not yeah, yeah. it was just to do it and to put it out and not, right. and not tell yeah, them yeah. you know that that seemed to capture more of the um the essence of, yeah, of what yeah, it was yeah. about than anything else so it's funny you said earlier that you, it was, there was no point in asking them and we get the impression in fact 
you almost made a point of not asking. That yeah, in, in the end, it became. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't do that with anyone else. These are mm. these are living people's lives. Right? Oh. You, know, you have a responsibility to them as a writer. You know, you can't. Just, they're not. They're not top playthings for you. Mm. You know, um, and I can't imagine any other scenario where I think, oh, that's a good idea. I'll, mm. I'll do that. Um, yeah. But this, it just seemed. It just see. It just felt right, mm-hmm. and because. After they'd burnt the money, they went on a tour of the UK playing film of it to ask people for a reaction. Yeah. I thought, well, that's my that's my out. Sorry, that's my excuse. Mm-hmm. They've asked for a reaction. It's taken yeah. me 17 years, but this is my reaction. So <laughs> it, it, it felt justified on those, on those sort of terms. But, oh, yeah, I, I certainly yeah. wouldn't write about living people without them being contacted in, that, yeah. you know, in any other yeah. circumstances. Yeah. That word justified, of course, very um, yes. <laughs> crucial to our, to our story. Um, it's, but it's, I, I, I realise in my kind of enthusiasm, um, there may actually be people listening, who knows, who have never heard of the KLF, who don't know any of the prehistory of Bill Drummond or yeah. Jimmy Corti. Um, would you be able to just talk a little bit about that prehistory, about sort of, so who, I mean, particularly, and you sort of say this in the footnotes, like the focus of the book uh, is much more on Drummond than Corti. Yes. Um, in, uh, for, for different reasons. But could you just talk, just introduce a little bit about the sort of the scene that kind of gave birth to, uh, or formed, I guess, uh, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. The, sure. The I Liverpool mean... of the, what, the late 70s, I guess. Yes. Um, yeah, well, Bill Drummond, um, the Scottish artist Bill Drummond, he was in Liverpool in the late 70s. He was part of the um, that punk, going on to post-punk mm-hmm. scene that was focused around the Eric's Nightclub in Matthew Street, which gave birth to, um, well, he was in a band called Big in Japan with Holly mm-hmm. Johnson from Frankie and... Uh, and Ian Brodie and Susie and, and Budgie on drums, who was Susie's drummer. Yeah. It was amazing sort of, amazing people. It was, yeah, abs- absolutely it was. And uh, Bill went on to manage Echo and the Bunny Men and manage <laughs> uh, The Teardrop Explodes. And this got him a job as an A&R guy in Warners. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd been around for a few years. I think he was seen as a, a sleazy is probably not the word for it, but, you know, you wouldn't quite trust him as an A&R uh-huh. guy. And he wasn't right. really signing anyone who was doing very well. He just, he didn't have a good vibe to him at, at this sort of point. But then he decided to um, make hip-hop records with Jimmy Corti, who had been in a band called Brilliant, which he'd, which he'd managed and signed. And uh, Jimmy uh, was also an artist. He'd done a very famous painting um, of the Lord of the Rings, which was on many a, a wall in, in the 1970s. Um and anybody had a sampler, so they formed this this band called Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, and mm. that name probably needs a bit of explanation. Yeah, because <laughs> this it, was going to be my next question. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's um, words like justified, you know, and ancients. They don't fit in pop music. Uh. They're, they're they're wrong for it. They, that, the name itself just makes you go, this is coming from a... I don't know what place this is coming from, but it's not the normal place. Okay. Uh, and it's it was coming from a book um, called the Illuminatus Trilogy, which was written by Robert Anton Wilson and, and Robert Shea, um, which was uh, the conspiracy Bible, for want for mm-hmm. of a better word. It's, it's a huge, uh, long trilogy of novels where um, every conspiracy is true, and nothing can be believed, and uh, you know, it's a mind-bending book. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a, it's, it's, it's perhaps not aged that well uh-huh. compared to a lot of Robert Anton Wilson stuff, um, but it's uh, a powerful book that really uh, changes how people see the world. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was in Liverpool, uh, Bill Drummond had been stage manager to a play of the Illuminatus trilogy, which is put on by a guy called, a guy called Ken Campbell, who's a whole other story. Yeah. Ken Campbell's a whole other area to sort of go down. But we'll, we'll keep, we'll, yeah, well, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep it short. Um, so he was inspired by this book, and he was taking things like the name Justified Ancients of Mumu from the book. And in the novel, uh, the Justified Ancients of Mumu, or the Jams, they represent the forces of chaos at work in the music industry. 
the book is a lot uh, covers a lot of discordian theory um so it's a lot about order and chaos um and that was the name given to the sort of anti-establishment sort of um anarchistic side mm. of the music industry so so bill and jimmy decided to become the justified agents mm. of the movement and this was at a time when sampling had just really just started to appear and there weren't any clear rules about what mm. was acceptable and what wasn't and what you could use so it feels a bit like how ai is now Mm-hmm. You know, there are people doing all sorts of amazing things using the voice of, you know, John Lennon and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But, and we haven't quite worked out what, you know, is morally acceptable and what yeah. isn't. It's, it's all very bad. So, so they would take just huge chunks of um, ABBA records and Beatles records, mm-hmm. not for not little loops, you know, not little, uh, not for the beat or something like that, as we've now used sampling. They'd take them because it was ABBA or the Beatles, yeah. and then they would just rap over them and they'd just add bits to them. But it was mainly just theft. It was pure theft. And, you know, ABBA's lawyers were no way uh, uh, into this, it turned out. They were very much against it. Uh, and um, they came down like a ton of bricks and they're, you know, they're, pretty much most of the copies of their first album had to be burnt because, yeah. of, because of this. And there was a whole saga when they would go off to Sweden to attempt to find ABBA to sort of talk to them artist to artist. And this became a, uh, a just a, a ludicrous story in, mm-hmm. in the in the NME of just farcical incident after farcical incident. So this mythology is building around them all this time. And um, they were a band that was great to write about, mm-hmm. even if at that time their records sound very dated now you know uh-huh. they don't sound you know uh, that sort of amazing but out of the justified ancients of movement um well rave happened i think that's mm. essentially what happened uh and they were sidetracked by by that and they changed their name they changed their name a lot they had a number one single <laughs> as a doctor who novelty record that i've skipped over they um they became the klf and uh-huh. it was a it was a supposed to be a a proper dance, anonymous, meaningless um, sort of name of the type mm. that was popular there. Yeah. I kept hearing rumours that no, it, it and you know they'd say it meant um, kings of low frequency or uh, copyright liberation from. They'd give it a, a meaning, but then it would change. But I kept hearing it, it meant it really it meant uh, King Lucifer forever. And I thought, <laughs> that's that's surprising to me. That's, That's appealing to the metaler in you as well. Yeah, what's <laughs> what's going on there? That's very very odd. That's very very odd. And the KLF, there just came a point where they became craftsmen. They mm. just became fantastic. Mm. They had a trilogy of records called the uh, Stadium House Trilogy, uh, which were which were mixes of, of songs that they'd previously done in oh. different versions. But they just stilled them into just pop wonder they were just fantastic sort of records there was what time is love 3am eternal the last train to trans central put those on now you go yeah those are great records still they're really superb yeah i mean that's that's an aside like one thing i because it's been quite a few years i think since i actually like sat down and listened to the klf um in part because before spotify it was quite hard unless you had the physical copies to, to to listen to them and like Aside from this story of all kind of kind of the interesting from an artistic perspective or a philosophical perspective, it's just like it, in a sense it would almost be meaningless if the music wasn't so good. And you know, yeah. there's not all of it is great, but the core of it is just still like thirty years later, more mind blowingly good. Absolutely. And so all this was happening like front and center in British culture, like they were number one. You right know, they yeah, were on yeah. top of the pops they were being yeah. written about in the papers it was it was under everybody's noses and mm. because it was there it was almost like a emperor's new clothes thing when no right. one wanted to say this is this is odd there's <laughs> something odd about this what's all what's all this about you know this this, this strangeness to it they had tammy Wynette singing about um uh, driving an ice cream van and it just is it meaningless <laughs> and so and they vaguely had this well not vaguely they they the media because they couldn't quite explain mm-hmm. where they were coming from and what what was driving them what their motivations were came up with this notion that oh they were master media manipulators mm-hmm. you know they they were the they had mastered the art of getting press attention and all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. that they had a plan 
that they knew what they were doing. I don't think that could have been more wrong. <laughs> really don't think that there was much of a plan involved. It was it was much more uh, in the spirit of pure burning chaos of imagination. Uh, you know, yeah. that's where it was all sort of you know, finding from. We'd look at things afterwards and impose mm. a narrative on them yeah, and, go, yeah. and, and go, oh, well, that, that prefigures what's going to happen here. And so therefore it was very clever and all this sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But well, let's, the, yeah, let's but, talk about like burning chaos and imagination because... Um, I want to return a little bit to Illuminatus and Discordianism because um, I, was, I was worried before we started this conversation that we might just immediately dive down a Illuminatus trilogy wormhole and yeah. never emerge from it. Um, and, but I think there's, actually there's so a lot far, of rabbit holes here that we could be oh, lost yeah. forever in. But so far, we, we just touch on I think we need to, because I think one of the fundamentally sort of most interesting things and informative things as well about the, uh, about the, the, the KLF and their actions is this kind of underlying philosophy. Um, now, you said, you know, the Illuminati trilogy, it's this kind of Bible of conspiracy theory and a kind of a, a set text, if you like, for discordianism. Mm. But the one thing that becomes very clear in this book is that it is a Bible for conspiracy theories, but with the acknowledgement, in a sense, that it's also a spoof. Yeah. Like there's this kind of sense of this is um, a, a satire, a spoof, a kind of the sort of the, it's it's not saying these conspiracy theories are real mm. it's kind of in some way sort of presenting them so as to undermine them similarly with discordianism it's very fundamentals as a quotes unquote religion is that it's both very sort of it's quite a, but a powerful philosophy and also in one sense meaningless or, or nonsense it's very it's very much aimed at getting you into a generalized state of agnosticism Right. Not, not just agnosticism about the existence of God, agnosticism mm. about everything. It's um, it's it's about it's it's a, it shows you that doubt is a superpower. I think uh -huh. it's get it's getting you not to trust um, uh, your the the partly the culture that you're presented with and the the standard sort of narratives, mm -hmm. but also not the counter narratives to them either not mm -hmm. the alternative sort of versions. Uh, and you, you, it was very fascinating um, looking at all this, you know, after that huge rise in conspiracy during mm. the, the, you know, from the Trump era onwards. And especially that period um, around the pandemic where people just stopped meeting their friends uh -huh. and they were just alone online. Uh -huh. And they just started to fall for all these strange, you know, you know, the QAnon, the... Um, the 5G, the, the anti-vax, all these sort of different sort of uh, rabbit holes that people sort of went down, it sort of that isolated them from mm. other people other than people who had the same beliefs online. It sort of strengthened those bonds. But because they were not going down the pub with their friends and going, oh, I read this thing, blah, 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 and the moment it comes out of your mouth in that space between two people, you just go, Oh yeah, look, that's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. Now I've said it out loud, I realised it was really convincing in my head. But now I've said it out loud, I realise how daft it is. People lost that sort of stuff, mm. and um, uh, people really fell for a, lo a lot of these conspiracy, these sort of really bleak, uh, paranoid, miserable conspiracy theories about how there was a malevolent them that's mm. out to do you harm, as the, the, the general gist of it. And the good thing about discordianism and Robert Anton Wilson and books like the Illuminatis, uh, they had also prepared you not to fall for mm. the counter narrative or the other explanation or the other thing. Uh, and to see how, how that was kind of like a mirror image, but was also running on similar rules as, as, mm. it, as it were. So the people who had um, read a lot of Robert Anton Wilson, from, from my perspective, seemed to come out of that period a lot better than uh, people who hadn't. There was a lot of pe political people, a lot of yogury sort of new age people. There's a lot of different sort of groups that that, that sort of fell away, you know, mm -hmm. and fell into the into these rabbit holes. Um, I think the 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 current that the KLF was drawing on was kept more. It was more like antibodies to keep you keep you safe mm -hmm. from all that more more than anything else. Um, it, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole point of discordianism is it presents itself as either, you know, a genuine religion disguised as a spoof mm -hmm. or a spoof disguised as a genuine religion. Right. And the more you understand it, 
the more you see there's no contradiction there at all uh, it can absolutely yeah. be both those things at, at yeah. the same time it's 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 very um it kicks you out of um little traps uh-huh. of thinking it's like as, as robert anton wilson would write you know uh, convictions create convicts uh-huh. what you believe imprisons you you know yeah we do need beliefs but we also need to be able to discard uh-huh. them when they're not useful you know and this is the um, the thing that I, I made uh, reference to in the introduction about the sort of um, what you describe as one of the most important philosophical leaps of the 20th century is this idea. And um, and there's you, there's different terminology for it in the book, but I really like the one of the kind of the idea of these kind of reality tunnels. Yeah. Sort of this sense of kind of we, we construct an idea, a tunnel in which we essentially are are in a life is, and the world sort of mediate, yeah. uh, are mediated between each other. And the thing is kind of like the acceptance that we we kind of need these mm-hmm. to to function and to live and to and to have a sense of meaning. But on the flip side, it's also important to recognize that it is a construction and it's and it and in, in that way it, it doesn't imprison you. It's kind of it becomes a it becomes a tool rather than a um a prison, I guess. Totally. I mean, you know, there's uh, how many people in the world? Is it seven billion or something at the moment? And every single person will see things in some way differently to everybody. Mm. You're never going to meet a person who sees the world exactly like right. you and who agrees with you on every single point. Mm-hmm. So if you've got any sort of knowledge of statistics, you then have to suspect that the chances are that you're the one person who gets it right. Uh-huh. And like everyone else is just, you know, <laughs> just idiots who just don't get it. The chances of that are too small for mm-hmm. it to be possible. You have to accept that there are you know flaws mm. in your model of the world and it is a model and a model is you know a, a smaller uh, less detailed uh, approximation of the thing that it represents it's not mm. one-to-one accurate but the problem is because we we live in our models and because they're so convincing mm-hmm. we generally believe that that's the universe the, the universe that i perceive is the universe when it really isn't there's a lot of difference and um you know this is not new idea mm. it's you know since plato uh since buddha people have been warning people about this the the, the philosophers call it naive reality the belief mm. that the, the world is as you perceive it and it just is what did Aeneas nin how did Aeneas nin put it she put it beautifully um uh, oh, a lot, a lot of writers have, have covered it. Mm. Um, William Blake, I've written a lot about William Blake, right. but it's yeah, absolutely yeah. there in, in in William Blake. And I'm um, just blanking on that Aeneas Nim quote, but it will come to me later and I'll sort of throw it in. It's not a new idea, uh, but it's Robert Anton Wilson was exceptional, really, in getting you to realize it. Because uh-huh. you can you can hear it ration, and rationally get it and uh, understand it on that sort of level. Mm but to deeply understand it mm. and, and not keep forgetting it is very, very hard thing to do. And that's where genius Robert Anton Wilson came in. He'd, he, he would sort of train his, his readers to sort of keep, to continually sort of putting a little crack in their reality tunnel and realising uh, that there's other perspectives out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That idea of, of cracks is really interesting and i think in a sense and again connects to um not just the story of the klf but the um the the epoch in which they were working in a sense mm. and that was one of the things i found utterly fascinating about the book and that i don't think i'd really reflected on much is the kind of the the how would you, how would we put it sort of the um the zeitgeist of the early 90s like the you know what was what what the world was going through kind of culturally and politically, uh, artistically. Mm -hmm. And these particular years from about like the 89 to about 94, before the 90s takes on its kind of, okay, oh, it's Spice Girls, it's Tony Blair. It's okay, we know what the 90s is about now. There were these few years where... I don't know whether let's say perhaps they're, the cracks. All, they're almost entirely absent in our cultural memory. Right. Though, so it's the John Major years. Is, yeah. Is the sort of area. <laughs> he, he, even Adrian Mole left them out of his uh. diaries. We sort of go straight from that Stock Aitken and Waterman 80s uh. into the Britpop era in our yeah, mental yeah, minds. Yeah. But there's about five years between those those things. And and that, that sort of that sort of strange 
in-between period. Mm. Um, there was a lot of interesting things going on there. I, I, I see that sort of the 90s as, um, I, I don't know, the twilight of the analog age really uh-huh. just just it's the, the the analog age was sort of winding down and the digital mm. world hadn't really fully sort of established itself uh at that at that sort of point in it but it didn't sort of go out with a bang uh-huh. it just sort of faded away and on a, on a lot of terms and you can see when i talk a bit about how musical genres seem to pretty much stop Mm-hmm. Around that sort of point, like big one, the, the yeah, main yeah, ones. Yeah. You know, the twentieth century. You got you got blues, you got jazz, you got rock and roll, you got soul, you got heavy metal. You you know, you got hip hop, you got dance music. Mm-hmm. These massive, massive continents of, of of musical possibility, like reggae uh-huh. and all these sort of things, would start to. And at the time, we thought that was just normal. We thought, oh, they're yeah. always going to keep coming. Always, there'll always be more new. Um, new you know uh, genres of music new types of sound and um even into the Britpop era we thought oh this isn't it's it's just you know music that sounds like music used to but that's ah. that's the new thing you know that's, yeah, that's, let's that's, go with that's it <laughs> uh, and it sort of gradually became apparent that these new genres weren't appearing anymore or if they were they were sort of um a crossover of two existing uh, things yeah, um, yeah you know you can look at something like um you know, grime and go, oh, that's a healthy, vibrant scene. And yeah. it absolutely is. But it is a, the, the child of, you know, hip hop and, of you know, British dance music and mm. all these various sort of things. It's not it's not new in the way that, you know, reggae was new or mm. heavy metal was new or mm. you know, psychedelia was new, isn't it? It's it's. Um, and we didn't sort of notice at the time. I think that's that's where I was going. It was this strange sort of. uh period of decline hmm. where we were just having too much of a good time to sort yeah, of yeah. realize that things were falling away in a really strange way but this is the point right we didn't notice but we get a sense from your book that the klf did right well, like I, this I, is... I, whether they noticed i don't know but they sort of acted in tune with it uh-huh. i would i would put it in that terms yeah they, mm-hmm. they was they certainly appeared to be in tune with what was really sort of going mm-hmm. on yeah, uh, whether they were aware of it or not, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because there's, there's this sense of like, as you, as you mentioned, that like, they were, um, and this is this comes before the burning of the the million pounds, but like you know they were at the top of their game. They had, you know, justified and ancient was out. It was topping mm. the charts all over the world. You know, it was, it wasn't just commercially successful. It also felt sort of artistically successful. Yeah. Like um, there's a moment, you know, you say that, you know, um, it was a record that was entirely of their own creation, one which seemed to achieve all of their um, their musical objectives. Yeah. Um, everything in it was the uh, was the result of their Drummond and Corti's idiosyncratic vision. Yeah. And yet then they made, and we're thinking particularly of the, the Brit Awards in 91, was it? Uh, yeah, which, 90, yeah, was it 92? Um, 94, sorry. Which um, is like a concerted yeah. effort or concerted uh, gesture to, let's say, destroy any kind of popular um, absolutely acceptance of, of their band, the band and their music. Absolutely, they had reached that point. Just going back to what you're talking about, how it was such a strange idiosyncratic, strange idiosyncratic uh, record, and yet everybody got it. Yeah, you didn't need to explain it. Hmm. You could just you could play it to a young kid. You could play it to a granny. And they go, oh, that's good. It was just, it was just. Yeah. Great. They'd reach that sort of that sort of peak, but they were exhausted. Mm-hmm. They'd had years, and because they did everything independently, um, with no real sort of, I don't know, team behind them, and no, certainly no uh, big uh, corporate record mm-hmm. uh, label supporting them. And they'd had so much success, and they made so much money, but they were burnt out, mm-hmm. um, and. What was happening was that the record industry was reaching out to accept them. You know, at that Brit Award you're talking about, they were awarded the uh, the best band um, gong. But weirdly, they were awarded it alongside Simply Red. Uh-huh. It's like the two winners for it. It's an odd thing. It's like they couldn't go, well, you're the best. Go and simply read the best. Simply read had just sold so many copies of uh-huh. stars that it was it was untrue. So the, the the industry was going, you're you're the best a band can be. You're as good as simply read. 
<laughs> quite, it's quite a mixed message on, yeah. on, on many levels. Um, and they couldn't really handle it. It was a sense of like, well, we failed them. You know, if the main industry is accepting us, if we're part of it, mm-hmm. uh, that's not what we set out to do. I mean, I, I love the way that they, they took their Brit Award and they went and buried it in a field near Stonehenge. Right. You know, I don't, I don't think um, Ed Sheeran does that. Uh-huh. You know, I don't yeah. think Adele does things like that. <laughs> uh, I, partic- I particularly love how a farmer dug it up and went, oh, what's this? Oh, it's, it's the KLF's Brit Award. <laughs> I best send it them back. They'll be looking for it. So this farmer then sent it back. So then they had to go and sort of rebury it again somewhere, somewhere deeper in Wiltshire, as the, as the story goes. Um, yeah, so this is where they sort of split up. Mm-hmm. I say sort of split up. They, they, they split up as a band, but they didn't split up as a partnership, which uh-huh. is very odd. And I can't think of um, any other example of uh, musicians who continued to work together after they've stopped making music. Right. You know, maybe married couples in, in some sense, but uh, I can't think of any anything else. It sort of implies that what they were together for wasn't just making music. Mm. It was some it was something deeper. Um and they they called themselves an art foundation at that point, mm. the K Foundation. Mm-hmm. And an art foundation is a very a very good cover for doing a lot of mad shit. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh it's art. You can sort of uh-huh. sort of explain it that way. Um, and uh, it's sort of around there that it starts to get quite dark, I think, their story. Um, I think they're in a bad way emotionally. I, the, the fact that they deleted the entire back catalogue, mm-hmm. which cost them far more than burning the million pounds, mm-hmm. um, is a real indication of how they were almost trying to erase themselves from mm-hmm. musical history. You know, so, yeah. they, so they don't appear on compilations, they don't appear on adverts or on film soundtracks or anything like that. They were independent, they owned it, so they could destroy it. They could sort of get rid of it uh, entirely that way. And um, uh, yeah, where was I going with this? Um, a lot of money was uh, hanging over them, mm. I guess. They'd made this million pounds. And a lot of the art that they were trying to do was really trying to process what it was uh, and what impact it was sort of having on them. Yeah, and they they yeah. were trying to be artists, but the art world wasn't in any way interested. Mm-hmm. The art world very clearly patrols who can be described as an artist or not. Yeah, so that's, yeah, so that's yeah. really the source of their power. Reputation uh, uh, is, is everything in the art world. Yeah. And and in fact, it's interesting, like moving from the you know the music world to the art world. But actually, as you sort of imply, they're not being really native to either. Like as you say, that was not that was not their their point. Their their point their thing was something that wasn't quite music and it wasn't quite art. There was something yeah. something more profound going on there. And even like at a at a moment, you talk about that you just say that the burning of a million quid should not be seen from the perspective of art. Yeah. And this is kind of that that full circle. And we're not gonna do it justice in this conversation because I think we need to be embedded in your book to yeah. to really get a sense of it. But but this this kind of is argument there seems to be back to this idea in a sense of not playing the game. Yeah. So, you know, they absented themselves from the, um, you know, the, the, they, they refused to play the game of the music industry or they tried their best to not play it. And then with this artwork, it's not that they're refusing to play the game of the art world. In fact, they're refusing to play the game of money. They're sort mm, of, mm. Um, they're showing the, um, in a sense, the meaninglessness, the fakeness, the reality tunnel to bring us back to discordianism of our system by this gesture. Yeah, when the when the idea of bur- let's just burn this money, when that idea started to percolate, uh, the question of well, where shall we do it mm. sort of uh, appeared, and the idea of doing it in an art gallery was very quickly discounted because mm. if they burnt the money in an art gallery, people would go, well, it's art. Oh. That was at work. That was an act of art, and you might like it, you might not, but that's what it is. Mm. Um, and that felt lesser than what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why they sort of flew up to this island uh, in, off, off in the Scottish Hebrides, the island of Jura, um, to burn it in a, a, a mm-hmm. deserted boathouse in the middle yeah. of the night. And, um, and it's at that point, it's probably fair to say they were a bad influence for each other. 
mm-hmm. right? They 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 had this really strong creative working relationship. They still do. They agree with each other. They mm-hmm. when one they get what the other one's thinking on a quite unusual sort of level. And so with that Brit Awards thing, when they're asked to open it, they had this notion that um, they would they would get a sheep and they'd dismember the sheep on stage with chainsaws and um, throw the parts of the carcass into the audience. And the idea was it would be an act so horrible right, that they'd never be forgiven for it. Mm-hmm. And that was really appealing for them. <laughs> and this this was winding down from original ideas. Yeah. It involved Bill chopping his hand off and throwing it into the right. audience. <laughs> Fortunately, they didn't sort of go for it. And as it happens, because they did uh, that song as a collaboration with Extreme Noise Terror, the grindcore mm-hmm. band, they are all hardcore. From Ipswich. Yeah. I particularly liked that little detail, something so charmingly British about that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But they're all, um, I mean, hardcore vegans and animal right mm. activists. They were not having this. They were not having a sheep to be chopped up on stage mm. with them. They were, you know, <laughs> so that was that was all sort of scrap. But it's these are, even these things that didn't happen, they're an indication of where they were going mm. and, and, and how they seem to be pushing each other. Uh, how long it was it was um whether you want to call it a a virtuous circle or a toxic yeah. circle is, yeah. is yeah, yeah. but they, they were sort of it was building and it was building and it was building and it was always going to go somewhere mm-hmm. somewhere somewhere a little wrong if not yeah yeah, yeah. if not horrendous <laughs> yeah well look we um we are go- we are running out of time and like, we haven't touched upon magical thinking we haven't touched upon idea space alan moore hasn't even got a mention and he is quite a um well, an important figure in this book so i'm gonna have to push our listeners to yes. um to, to 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 go to the book and read and you know find out what exactly i'm talking we've hardly mentioned multiple model agnosticism mm. so you know all of this um but i think where i'd like to finish is coming back to to today i guess so you already mentioned um that sort of there seemed to be a certain sort of people who were familiar with discordianism perhaps familiar with the klf sort of seemed in some way sort of immune to a lot of the the conspiracy theories and things which have been been shaping our society of, of, of the recent I, yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not to say they're not steeped in them. It's not to sure. say they're not interested in them or uh, knowledgeable about them. Mm-hmm. But they don't really believe them. And yeah. that's the important yeah, yeah. thing, I think. But but just to, to, to conclude about the sort of the KLF and this gesture and this and with the book today, like when you're revisiting it, has your feelings about the the act and the band changed in these 10 years? When you came back to the book, did you get a sense of sort of, oh, yeah, no, I'm more or less on the same page as I was? Did it did it read differently to you? Did you get did you sense meanings that you didn't even realize were there when you were writing it? Like, how how does this book feel to you? Yes, it was it was a very strange experience. And I, I think it gets across how I thought about it 10 years ago uh, quite well yeah. um i'm 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 probably less able to say how i feel about it now because it's, but i think mainly because i mean it's an odd one that book mm-hmm. adam it's um <laughs> when you when you write a book and you put it out i kind of feel you're more the midwife than the mm-hmm. mother right mm-hmm. in that the book goes out into the world and it might be good and well behaved or it might be terrible or it might cause trouble. But if you're your midwife, it's not really your fault. Uh-huh. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not like you're the parent who brought them up. You, you, sure. It's your job just to get them out in a relatively healthy shape and sort of set them on the way. <laughs> and then you go on to the next job and you do the next yeah. one, and you do the next one. So it's, it's always been a surprise to me, the, um, impact that book has had on people Mm -hmm. um and i feel quite relieved that even though it's playing with fire Uh that impact seems to be genuinely positive Mm -hmm. on people i i could see a scenario where it sent a lot of people quite wrong you know that that seems possible but it doesn't seem to have it really doesn't seem to have it seems to have been quite an enriching thing Mm -hmm. uh for a lot of readers um and it's got a i mean it's definitely 
got an energy of its own that book it's like yeah. the, the publishers i mean one of the reasons we did the 10th anniversary was the publisher she goes um oh that, that caliph book it just keeps selling and, <laughs> and she was like what's that about you know it's like that doesn't happen that's that's wrong you know it's a, uh-huh. it doesn't really obey the normal rules of um of uh books um or at least at least how the industry presents it you know uh-huh. it's, it's it was because i put it out in independently you know i didn't um i didn't go out to all uh, literary festivals talking about it i didn't do interviews it wasn't really reviewed it wasn't anywhere near the uh establishment spotlight of the mm-hmm. of the publishing industry and it hasn't mattered at all uh, and i don't think these things do matter ultimately uh, as much as you you play the game and you, you go along with them uh it's whether the book itself is vivid and vital and strong enough to call out to people because mm-hmm. you sort of you know when you want to read a book you just hear the book. And you go, oh, I want, to, I want to read that, and it it, it calls for you somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you're writing the book. You're sort of exploiting the fact that the reader has been drawn to it, mm. and that there's a thing you can play with there. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a very strange and fascinating thing for me. The yeah. the life cycle of this book. It's it's entirely wrong. <laughs> it's, it's up, you know, it came out self-published ebook, and then it came out as a paper book and a paperback, and now ten years later, it's a, a glossy hardback. And uh-huh. It's completely upside down. That's the wrong order. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't happen like that. <laughs> None of the rules really sort of yeah. work if the book is, um, if the book is, you know, strong enough yeah. to call yeah. out to the people who need to hear it. And I think, in a sense, that's the that's the greatest pitch for the book. It is um mind expanding it is potentially life-changing it certainly has a life of its own well that's Um, what all books should be surely indeed indeed and uh you know would that there were more like (laughs) uh like the klf john it's been such a pleasure speaking to you today Um, it's lovely to talk to you adam really nice i can only imagine our um our, our readers will charge our listeners will charge out and buy this book um of course it's available from shakespeare and company uh from our bricks and mortar store from our online shop or from your local independent bookstore wherever wherever that may be um yeah one more time john a great pleasure today thank you for joining us thank you i'm sure we'll speak again thanks adam oh, we will <laughs> thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.